What do you do when caregiving actually lands in your lap, unplanned, unexpected, not how you plan to live your life? Well, this is exactly the topic that we shared today with our special guest, Aaron White. His book, When Caregiving Calls, as the title alludes to, it was called to him. And the subtitle is Guidance as You Care for a Parent, a Spouse, or Aging Relative. He's a speaker, a consultant on caregiving and aging and healthcare. He's been recognized as a top 100 healthcare leader by an international forum in healthcare. He has a firm that he does consulting called Caregiving Kinetics of the same name on uh, his website, Caregiving Kinetics, K-I-N-E-T-I-C-S. So what has made this particular topic so powerful to me today is because I feel this is so common with individuals that care for someone who has Alzheimer's or dementia. We never ever would have chosen this path. And yet here's the path that we're on. How did that caregiving enter your life? How do you feel about your caregiving right now? We talk about emotions, we cover um, normalization of those emotions. And there's some really extra wonderful little bonuses at the very end that I hope to stick around for. We're glad that you're here. And I will say we currently don't have any sponsors. If there is anyone that would be interested in supporting this podcast, you can do it with a dollar, you can do it with much more. And you can go to our website at caregiverwellnessretreat.com. This is a 501c3 nonprofit, and our goal and mission is the wellness of caregivers just like you. So welcome. I'm so glad you're here, and I'd love to know how you enjoyed this episode. So please consider giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever else you found this podcast today. Thanks so much for joining us. introduce you all to someone that I've gotten to know over the last couple of months. We've had several conversations and Erin was a special guest in one of our recent uh, caregiver wellness retreats. Um, and it was such an impactful conversation. And so I'm so grateful uh, that you've been flexible. I think we, we shifted our time a little bit for the podcast as well. And I think everything is as timing is perfect. So a little bit more about our special guest, Erin Blight is a speaker and a consultant on caregiving, aging, and healthcare. And you've recently won a couple of awards and one as recent as uh, this last week, I think, an independent book award. And your book is called When Caregiving Calls. And it's a guidance as you care for a parent, spouse, or aging relative. And you also have um, a consulting firm called Caregiving Kinetics. And it's Caregiving Kinetics. That's K-I-N-E-T-I-C-S. Um, and your website is a wealth of resources as well. So I just want to welcome you here today. I have, um, as I said, I've really been looking forward to this because I feel like your book is um, much like you are in person, <laughs> or at least online, <laughs> super concise practical 
and also um, a lot of thought-provoking questions. So with, with a sense of curiosity. So um, welcome. That's exactly the kind of book I was hoping to write, Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> check check <laughs> yeah. so if you ever if you ever need a uh, what do they call them what a little blurb I'm your girl yeah, yeah. all yeah. right um well I wanted to start out today uh I, I often ask our guests how they take care of themselves so because really our biggest mission with caregiver wellness retreat is yes we provide resources for our caregivers but most importantly how are we taking care of ourselves so that we can care for another? Um, and what do you do to take care of yourself? Well, thank you for asking me, Melissa. I, I definitely like to exercise. Um, I run, I go to the gym, and that allows me to just kind of re recharge and, and remain healthier than if I didn't exercise. I also enjoy um, reading scripture and prayer and meditation. Um, I've learned a little bit from you about meditation, and uh, I think that's very valuable, but being able to just uh, engage in some spiritual activities also really helps me to keep focused and, and grounded and um, being in a position to, to try to help other people. Well, I think that's um, a really important aspect. We had a recent guest, Dr. Jennifer Butte, I don't know if you're familiar with with her and her work, but she is oh. she is someone who has dementia, and she's written a beautiful book. And we did a podcast with her um, not too long ago, and she also talks quite a bit about the spiritual aspect and how how that has sort of transformed her relationship with actually having dementia. And I think it's sometimes before before you came on, we talked about how the category you won your book award in? Do you want to say what it is? <laughs> uh, the new one won a bronze medal Ippy award in the category of aging, death, and dying. Right. <laughs> and like, <laughs> wow, what a heavy, what yeah. a heavy topic. And yet, you know, we, we, we were commenting about how I wish it wasn't such a heavy thing. Like if, if we, if we approached it with a sense of grace and we approached it with a sense of how essential that conversation is, just like spirituality is an essential conversation, well-being is an essential conversation, um, you know, death should also be a part of our conversation. And so what I love about the title of your book, When Caregiving Calls, it's to me in reference to like, it is not something you asked for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right. And and it, your own it just comes upon you. Yeah, it just comes upon you. And your own story, I know you were caring for your mother-in-law who had cancer and then later um developed um some dementia. And so what was one kind of caregiving became a totally different kind of caregiving. I'd love for you to speak a little bit about your your own personal story and how that unfolded towards your family. Yeah. So we're going back over 20 years now. I was relatively young when caregiving called, called me and, and my wife. Her mother was unexpectedly diagnosed with a brain tumor and she was given weeks to live. And they recommended immediate brain surgery. This was at Johns Hopkins University in Maryland. 
And they said that if she survived the OR and if the surgery was successful, she might live six to nine months. And so of course she went ahead and had the brain surgery. It was cutting edge, innovative brain surgery at the time. And she moved into our home to recover from that brain surgery. She was supposed to stay with us for two weeks. She ended up staying in our home with us for two years. She had um, radiation chemotherapy treatments while she lived with us. She had a second brain surgery. Uh, the cancer had, <clears throat> had spread through different parts of her body, but it eventually went into remission. And she lived five and a half years after that original diagnosis. She was a miracle of modern medicine, but at the, at the same time, she had cognitive decline for that entire time. So even though she eventually moved out of our house and into her own place, she was not able to be fully independent because of her cognitive challenges. And we were constantly going over there to help her with all of her needs for the rest of her life. And, and a few months prior to her death, the doctors said um, that they didn't know what they could do to stop or reverse her cognitive decline. And my words, my words are she was going to become a, a full vegetable. Um, but she never reached that point because the cancer returned and uh, came back with a vengeance and she, she did die of cancer ultimately. And so, you know, throughout the book, what, one of the things that, that really strikes me that you come back to or that, that is kind of almost an underlying theme is, is relationship. So whether like in your chapter on emotions, you talk about getting support and then also just the many roles that we have. And I, I just think for, for a caregiver that this is huge. In fact, you have an entire chapter on loneliness. Yeah. And um, I don't know if you're, uh, the, the current Surgeon General, um, Vivek Murthy, I don't know if you're aware of this. Did you hear, did you know? Yes. Yeah, so he actually did a tour um, of the United States and talked about loneliness. He, 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 he's labeled loneliness as an epidemic in our society right now that you know we are experiencing lonely, loneliness in epidemic proportions. And you know there are different reasons for that, I think, in our society as a whole. But among caregivers, loneliness is a very, very common um, challenge because the, the more enmeshed that you become in caregiving, the more time that you spend in caregiving, the less that you're able to go out and interact with other people and do the things that you used to do and associate with the circles of friends and, and family members, extended family members that you used to talk to. And so um, you can have a growing sense of isolation and loneliness, and, and that can contribute to further withdrawal, actually. Yeah, and, and actual physical, physical health problems <laughs> and premature. I mean, it's like, it is such a systemic issue, and we don't, I think, often recognize how powerful and this is. But also, the other theme that I get from your book um, is just this thread of almost normalization of these things, mm -hmm. meaning yeah. um, I'd love for you to speak a little bit about your chapter on emotions, um, if you're willing. <laughs> yeah, 
So, um, well, it's, you know, that word normalization, I think that I love that word because I do think that we need to normalize caregiving and we need to recognize that caregiving is, is ubiquitous. It's, it's so common, but most people don't think about it until it's right in front of them. So you're, you know, you're busy with your, your day-to-day -day life and responsibilities. And you, you may have in the back of your mind this knowledge that, oh, one day I might have to be a caregiver for a loved one. But you don't really think about it past that until that day arrives. And then now it's in front of you. And a lot of people are, are not prepared for it. And um, family caregivers are invisible. Um, they are, in my opinion, the, the unsung heroes of the long-term care delivery system in America. Um, there's so much focus on the needs of the, of the patient in the healthcare system, rightfully so. The patient is the one that's getting the treatment and the care, but the, but the family caregiver is the one that is making sure that all of their needs are met at home. And um, the family care, caregiver provides not just physical support, but also emotional support and love and tenderness and patience and presence. I mean, all of these things are what the family caregiver offers their loved one. And they do it because of love. They do it because of duty. They don't seek fanfare. They don't even really seek help for themselves, even though this situation has been thrust upon them and, and it can be overwhelming. The needs of the care receiver as, as those needs grow, they are relentless. And um, so often family caregivers feel alone, they're overwhelmed. And I do think that uh, they deserve to be recognized and supported more fully. Um, on the emotion side of it, Melissa, you know, Caregiving is an emotional roller coaster. And um, when I was writing my book, I, I mentioned this in the emotions chapter, <clears throat> I did a, a list. I, I mean, I, I did a Google search on list of emotions. And I discovered that psychologists often use lists of emotions with their patients to try to just help their patients process their feelings. And by the way, lists of emotions online, they are copyrighted. Who would have thought? I, you know, I, I didn't know that. I actually went to an organization that had a list of emotions online and I asked if, you know, crediting them, if, if it would be okay if I cited that in my book. And they said, no. And I was like, okay, well, I'll just come up with my own list of emotions. <laughs> So the I'm, list of emotions. I'm thinking they're they're human and universal. So <laughs> uh, I know, go figure. But so anyway, the the list of emotions in when caregiving calls is actually more comprehensive than that one. I think there are 148 emotions, and uh, the caregiver is invited to go down the list and circle 10 emotions that are most that they that they feel the most frequently in the caregiving in the caregiving role. And, you know, as I was compiling that list of emotions, I realized that I have heard caregivers express all of those emotions at one time or another. And some of those emotions are, are, are happy and euphoric and other times they are, they are depressed and anxious and negative. And I think that getting back to your word normalization, Melissa, 
I think it's so important for caregivers to, to realize that those negative emotions, those anxious emotions, it doesn't mean that you're a bad human being or a bad caregiver. That's just part of caregiving. It's very natural. It's very normal. There's nothing, nothing wrong with you if you're feeling negatively about this situation with your loved one. Um, and there's no judgment here about those negative emotions. They, they just, they, they exist. I felt them with my mother-in-law and I try to be very open with that in my, in the book, because on the one hand, you know, I wanted to be there for my mother-in-law. I wanted her, I wanted her to live in our home. I wanted to provide all of the support that she needed. I felt that she deserved that. I loved my mother-in-law. She treated me wonderfully from the moment that I first started dating her daughter. You know, I was a son to her. She, she actually kept a picture of me by her bed until she died in this costume. It was a Halloween costume thing, but, um, but at the same time, I resented her being in our home. Mm -hmm. I, I, I hated that she was there. And, and I, I felt this, this internal conflict about the whole situation. And when she was in our home, I, I, I grew to resent it so much that I, I actually got to the point that, you know, I'd, I'd have a long day at work and I would come home from work tired and I'd sit down at dinner with, with the rest of my family, my wife and kids, and my mother-in-law was right across the table from me every single night. And I, I got to where I could not look at her. That's how, that's how I, that's how negatively I felt about the situation, but she didn't ask to have cancer. I'm sure, you know, she didn't want to be in this situation either. I'm sure that living with us was not her ideal situation. And so these emotions that I was feeling, I, I had never felt things like this before. They were disorienting for me. And I did not do a very good job as a family caregiver with her because I, I just didn't have a clue. And, but it happened to me at a young age. You know, I, I was 29 years old, she was young, and I've had over 20 years to work with family caregivers, to study caregiving. And I, I understand it so much better now. And um, that's why I wrote the book really, because I know that family caregivers are, are feeling these things and it, it can be a lonely road, but um, they don't have to be alone and they don't have to struggle in the same ways that I did. I so appreciate just the transparency with that. And I'm sure I'm seeing a few other caregivers nod. It's just, that is, is such a reality and we don't often vocalize it or have, or feel we have a safe place to vocalize those frustrations. And so I know one thing you you mentioned in, in your book, and in fact, one of the things I really appreciate about it is you do the questions for reflection at the end. And I and I hope and I would encourage those caregivers that that do get the book, um, that you really spend time with that. I know you encourage it. It's so easy just to skim, but there's so much value in being able to sit with when that emotion pops up. There's a Judson Brewer is um, a doctor who has written a book. Um, he, he wrote a book called The Mind Craving. And there's another book um, on anxiety that he wrote. And one of the things he talks about in it is this idea of 
you know, how does, how does a, how do we handle emotions? How do we deal with anxiety? How do we deal with a habit? You know, kind of a similar thing. It's like, there's a trigger and then there's a behavior and there's a response. And what we do is we, we, we sort of just think, uh, we have this behavior and reaction and we get a chemical response out of it, but then we loop back around to it over and over again <laughs> and that, and it doesn't change. The way to shift that is to be with it physically, experience it somatically. And one of the ways your suggestion in terms of journaling and, you know, other ways that people kind of process or be with specific emotions that's the way through versus, yeah. yeah, versus, you know, letting it be this loop. Absolutely. You know, those loops, I think, are a result of our, our own um, schema, that our, our own way of thinking about the world and seeing the world and the patterns that we've experienced in our lives. And we, it's, it's sort of our, our taken for granted assumptions about how the world works. And we, we, but we also know through research and learning, and by the way, I'm, I'm a, not a medical doctor. My, my doctoral degree is in learning, but we know that transformative learning can happen through intentional reflection. And so that's why those books, that's why those questions are in the end of every chapter in the book, because if you really do intentionally reflect deeply on those questions and apply them to your individual situation, you're going to gain insights about yourself, about your loved one, about your relationship with, with your loved one, about the world around you. And it will allow you to, um, to experience caregiving in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, I was on a, we had a session a, a month or two ago, was, this was in April. Uh, it was a group in New Hampshire that uh, read the book and we had a follow-up discussion like this online. And um, there was a lady there, she was probably 79, 80 years old, something like that. That's just my guess. And she said that she read the book and she engaged with the questions for reflection with journaling. She said she wrote every single question she, she thought about and she spent a lot of time writing these answers. She had been caring for her husband for six years. And before that, she had cared for her mother for 14 years. So 20 years she spent caregiving. And she said that she has never, ever learned as much about herself and about caregiving as she did by journaling her responses to those questions. And she said, and she said, I don't want to share my what I wrote with anyone. <laughs> and so that's, that's totally fine. It's not for any, it's, it's for you. This was for you. And you could, I could see that she was a changed person from that process. And so that's, that's really what I hope people do. I mean, the, 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 the chapters, they're informative, they're helpful, they're concise, as you said, and practical. But if you really start to dig into your own experience, sometimes those prompts, those question prompts will cause you to think about something that you never really considered before. Absolutely. And it's like, you know, oh, in my situation, what does this, what does this mean for me? Exactly. And coming at it from, um, cause it's so easy to come at it from a more of a judgmental perspective or like, like, oh, I could have, would have, should have. <laughs> right. Um, but instead coming from a sense of curiosity, 
So, and when the, when you do that, it takes the, a lot of the anxiety and some of those negative emotions, it lightens those. Yeah. Yeah. That whole judgmental piece of it, um, you know, we, we were talking earlier about uh, just death and dying. And, and I think we need to also get away from judging people. And I think that sometimes caregivers, um, pe people, people form judgments about what should or should not be done. Um, caregivers are told often by extended family, oh, you should do this, you should do that for your loved one. And you know what, they haven't walked in your shoes. Ho hopefully they're just trying to help you know, that those are, those suggestions are delivered in, with a, a sense of love and, you know, with good intent. But as caregivers, um, there, there should be no judgment. And um, it just is, this, this is what is happening in your life today. And sometimes caregivers are in denial about what's happening. They don't want to recognize the reality that they're in, or sometimes they just they just get so busy, they 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 occupy themselves with busyness that they don't they don't they don't take time to reflect and to to really make meaning of what's happening and process deeply uh, the the emotions they're they're experiencing and things like that. So busyness can just be a cover up for some some deep seated issues that you're having. And so the book really is, is an invitation with no judgment whatsoever for you to explore your experience and to understand it better. I think I, I really appreciate the, the principle of making meaning. And one of the, you know, what you just mentioned in terms of non-judgment and the family members haven't walked in your shoes. <laughs> um, is also another another theme that you kind of pick out in terms of um, how roles are incorporated throughout, um, you know, through all of this. As you're looking back, you know, because this is kind of, this whole book really is a reflection of you, kind of in a conglomerate of what you've learned. If you had to distill that down into, you know, maybe someone who is fresh to caregiving or that's a newer experience, how, or maybe someone who isn't even a caregiver yet, what are some th things that you would suggest for them? A couple of key, key takeaways that you've learned. I think that one is um, that caregiving changes family relationships. And um, in the, in the relationship chapter, I do talk about some applied gerontology research from, um, to applied gerontologists, Rhonda Montgomery and Carl Kozlowski. And I, I discovered their work years after my mother-in-law passed away when I was doing my own doctoral research. And I was blown away by how they conceptualized family caregiving. And it gave me so many insights as to why, why I struggled as a family caregiver and why the, the families that I worked with in my home care company were struggling. And it really has to do with the nature of the relationship between the caregiver and the care receiver. And so, you know, historically, if you're a family caregiver, you've always had a family role in that relationship. Let's say that maybe if you're a wife caring for a husband, um, historically, wife has been your role 
and, and wife has all kinds of meaning and connotations. And the way that you interact with that man has always been wifely. Or if you're a child, an adult child, let's say that you're a daughter or a son and, you, and it's your mother that you're talking about, you know, your relationship with your mother has always been marked by being, being the child of that woman. And um, so that historic relationship is, is very personal. It's very important to you, but it's defined so much of who you are in relation to, to them. And when caregiving now enter, enters the picture, your loved one's needs have, have arisen. And because of the changing health conditions of your loved one, the nature, the nature of your interactions with your loved one will change. You'll start to interact with them differently. You'll start to think about them differently. You'll start to do different things for them and with them. The dialogue will change. And so over time, as your loved one's needs grow and increase, you have to respond in kind because caregiving is a process of continual adaptation. You're always adapting to the needs of the care receiver. And so these roles, this historic family role is being crowded out by this new caregiver role. Mm -hmm. And so as a caregiver, the things you're doing are different. The nature of your relationship changes and it can be hard. It can be very disorienting for you to say, well, you know, who am I now in this relationship? I don't think about my, my husband or my parent in the same way anymore. And I think they don't think about me in the same way either. Like they're, they're depending on me for things differently now. And so um, it, that's what happens when caregiving introduces, is introduced into the relationship over time. And so family caregivers can really struggle over the long trajectory of caregiving, just processing this whole relationship dynamic. Well, I think this is huge. And, I, and, and for those listening, you could probably relate to even just a time in which you like as as a young young adult leaving home right so so that separation and sort of navigating the distance and navigating a new kind of relationship with your parents or, or whoever it is you are, you grew up with and and applying what you learned with that to this idea of caregiving because it is just another phase or a season and, and one way that's really helped me because I've, I actually have never lived in the same city as my father. And when my dad was caregiving for my stepmom, I was never, I was never there. I would only come back a few times a year and see the progression. And now I live a mile from my dad <laughs> and whoa, is it different? It's like, I feel like a teenager all over again. It's like a whole new boundaries and a whole new, like, you know, and sometimes uh, I feel like, uh, you know, he still sees me as that teenager. So how, how can I navigate this in terms of just a broader perspective to prepare me for an, another caregiving role? Can I, can I change how I view things, even if the other person doesn't? Can I have a more expansive view? Can yes. I, instead of rejecting who I am as a daughter or rejecting who I, like if I'm caring for my husband, for example, instead of rejecting the wife role, can I instead look at it like, like there's more, yes. there's more. Yeah. And, that, and that's, that is how 
a lot of caregivers that continue in the role over the long haul, that's how they, they do it. They redefine what that family role is. So they, if it's, let's say, using the example of a daughter caring for her father, um, you might say, well, historically, being a daughter has meant this. But now, because of my father's age or his health conditions or his stage of life, being a daughter encompasses caregiving responsibilities. And I'm still a daughter. I'm just a daughter in a different way. Mm -hmm. And you're in that way, you're kind of assimilating your definition of who you are in that relationship to, to allow yourself space to, to, you know, continue doing these things and not feeling like it's a, it's a, an identity conflict for you in the relationship. And that, that's what Montgomery and Kozlowski talk about. They talk about identity discrepancy, identity conflict, where if there's, if you're feeling dissonance, you're feeling a disconnect between who you are today in the relationship because of caregiving compared to who you think you should be mm -hmm. or who, who you have historically been, that's a disconnect. And that's, that's an identity discrepancy in the relationship. And you have to, you have to somehow come to terms with that. Mm -hmm. And there really are three ways that you do. And this is way easier said than done, Melissa, because <laughs> this can be one of the hardest things that you do, but and we talked about this at the wellness, the Calgary wellness retreat, mm -hmm. actually. Um, one is you can redefine the meaning of being a daughter or the redefine the meaning of being a wife to encompass what you're currently doing as a caregiver. A second thing that you can do mentally in your mind is say, okay, I'm stepping away from that family role and I'm transitioning, I'm pivoting into this, this caregiver role that's emerging and I'm doing it because I love my loved one and because I have this historic relationship with them. I acknowledge that that historic relationship is changing now and that's okay. I'm, I'm gonna just pivot into this new, new relationship. Or the third way that a lot of family caregivers handle it is they, off, they offload the tasks of caregiving that are causing them the identity conflict that are causing them the, the dissonance. So they outsource caregiving to others, to formal care providers. And there is no right or wrong way of handling this. There's no judgment here. It's not like this one is better than the other one. It, it it's just is. And you as a family caregiver um, need to be, the, the most important thing is that you, you are okay with how you're addressing your loved one's needs. And you can feel good about yourself in the relationship. Yeah. Well, there's one thing that you, you talk about uh, in the book. Um, caregivers do better um, and caregiver uh, care receivers also do better. So this idea of when, uh, you know, well, maybe you, you can explain it much better than I can. <laughs> I think, it, yeah, when care, when caregivers do better, care receivers also do better. Mm -hmm. So just the concept is the better, the better state of mind, the better physical shape that you're in, the better your mentality and your mindset is as a caregiver, uh, the happier that your loved one will be as well. You're going you're gonna to do a better job with them. Your relationship's going to be better and you're going to be uh, better able to fulfill the needs of your loved one. Absolutely. And I think it, that really parallels what you just mentioned earlier. It's you have to make the decisions that are, that are right for you in that moment as the caregiver and, and release 
whatever judgment, <laughs> whatever everyone else is telling you and compiling into the into situation. I think it's discerning to listen. I think you even mentioned that in your book, just listening right. mm -hmm. doesn't mean you have to take it. <laughs> right. You know, one, one thing that, that sometimes comes up, Melissa, in, in this is this decision about whether or not you are going to place your loved one into a long-term care facility. Yeah. And this can be a very gut-wrenching, heartbreaking decision. And so often people think, well, you know, the decision about placing a loved one is really based on their needs, uh, you know, their health conditions, and then also the, the facilities, um, amenities and the facilities services. And those are, those are two important parts, your loved one's needs and the facility services. But there's really a third component here, which is the capacity of the family to meet those needs. And if your loved one's needs are exceeding your capacity to meet them, you, you can't run yourself into the ground as a caregiver you have to realize that that part, that part is the part that a lot of family members don't even want to acknowledge. Mm -hmm. But as your loved one's needs increase and get to the point that they are unrelenting 24 seven, you're unable to sleep, you're unable to do anything for yourself because your loved one's needs have become so intense um, and you're trying to do it all alone, you, you can't do that. I mean, they have teams of people in facilities to meet the needs of, of folks with uh, more intensive health conditions. And it's okay if you reach that point that you, you can't do it all by yourself. It's important to recognize that. Well, I think it's also important to recognize that this is also a very privileged conversation that we're having. Not everyone has the access to or the privilege to, to be able to afford or whatever their circumstances are. So I think it's super important just to simply acknowledge that. And, and also- well, And there are, and there are you know, for, for folks that, that are, um, the Medicaid does cover, there are, there are uh, public programs as well that will allow for um, long-term care facilities. Exactly. So I was gonna say, I think for those that that, that is a concern for, there, there is some resources available we have, several of those on our website and, and people are welcome to email me. I'm happy to share, to share resources. And I, I think it also goes back to what you talked about in several of your chapters, just asking for help, you know, making those lists of, of people you can count on or seeking out people that you, you really probably maybe not even be aware of yet who could possibly help you that don't have a lot of financial uh, cost attached to that. So, yeah. One of, one of, one of the, when you're talking about people like that, Melissa, um, one, one group that pops into my mind is caregiver support groups. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a caregiver and you have not reached out to a caregiver support group, um, you can find those online or you can find them in your local community. But these are people that, and I know with, with dementia care, there are a lot of um, Alzheimer's support groups but there are Parkinson's support groups. Um, but these are people that are, are caring for loved ones just like you. And they are in it to try, they're in the support group to try to learn from each other, to provide moral support, 
there's understanding, there's there, deep friendships are made in these caregiver support groups. And um, I would not underestimate the impact that a caregiver support group could have on you. I completely agree. I know in, in our family's case, we've, I've had this conversation with my dad a few times. It's like, why, why didn't you? Because he, he didn't go to a caregiver support group and in fact, didn't attend one of my retreats. So <laughs> there, there was this, this idea that he, you know, he was like, I couldn't, I couldn't handle listening other others stories. Mine was, was hard enough or, and I think it's okay to acknowledge that you're in a diff, you know, whatever, whatever season of the caregiving you're in, that that's okay as well. And that there are different types of support groups. Um, you know, everything from just learning coping skills and meditation. So you're not actually hearing a lot of other people's stories to, you know, preparing to, to plan. There's just so much support now that it doesn't look the same as it did, you know, 10 years ago when my dad was doing this. So for those. Exactly, <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I think the internet has really had a, a fundamental impact on that because there's there's so many different types of groups that you can find online now Absolutely. and and the participants report a lot of value in those different communities Absolutely. Well, I am so happy that you were able to join us today. I I feel like we could probably talk quite a bit longer <laughs> from the richness of this. So I'll, I'll encourage folks to um, go back and listen to the to the Calgary retreat because you definitely have some incredible insight that um, was just immediately impactful. Uh, one caregiver uh, wrote that she was just moved to make a big a big change in terms of garnering support for herself and for her loved one. And that was huge. Um, so I'm so, so grateful that you were able to join us today. And um, I'm excited to continue this conversation a little bit offline. So if, if, uh, if you're watching on Facebook, I'm so glad that you came. And if you're also listening to our podcast, thank you. We hope that you will join us next time live because we do this on um, Zoom and we invite our caregivers that are on our mailing list to join us. There's no catch and no hitch. It just means that you get a little extra couple of question times with our uh, guest speakers. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. And I'm curious what your nugget that you took away from this was. Was it understanding the emotions better? Was it how caregiving came into your life? Was it the discussion on loneliness and isolation? So I'm super curious if you would consider leaving us a review or uh, typing in the comments somewhere below wherever you're listening to this podcast. It helps other caregivers find us. So we would love that. And you can also do a Google review on caregiverwellnessretreat.com. If you just type in caregiver wellness retreat and do the Google field, uh, it'll pop up there on the right-hand side and you can click review. So if what we have done has been meaningful in your life. We want to know about it because it will help us reach other caregivers and be able to provide these services at no cost. One of the favorite things that Erin said today, caregivers do better, caregiver receivers also do better. So I'll ask you, how can you really do 
better, not harder, faster, smarter, more perfectionistic, but how can you truly take better care of you? I hope you'll join us again and especially join us right when we record it because we have sort of this secret community. Uh, it goes out to our newsletter list and you're invited to this community gathering where we have a little conversation beforehand. You get to listen to the podcast live and interact via chat. And then we close the recording and we have more discussion. You have exclusive access to the speaker. So I hope you consider doing that. You can sign up for all our podcasts on our website at caregiverwellnessretreat.com. I'm Melissa, and thanks for joining us today.